Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 15th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 22. In the closing days of the kingdom of Judah under King Zedekiah, even at a moment when perhaps it seemed like Babylon might actually leave Judah alone, still the Lord gives Jeremiah his word that judgment, exile, and death are coming. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. As we get started this morning, Pastor Ulmer, let's talk a little context. Today's text is quite well situated historically, unlike some parts of Jeremiah where we're unsure when it might be happening. This one, we have a very good picture of when it happens. We're told that Zedekiah is king. We're even told a few other details about what part of his reign this event takes place. So given some of the the context we're going to encounter, what should we know about the historical situation? And then anything about Jeremiah's ministry in general that will help us as we prepare to read chapter 34 today? Yeah, so the the historical context of this of this passage specifically has to do with the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and this siege starts according to second kings in the ninth year uh, in the tenth month on the tenth day of Zedekiah's reign so we're looking at probably 589 588 uh, BC uh, when this passage starts, uh, as we get uh, through our conversation here, we'll we'll probably talk about how during the siege of Jerusalem there is a little bit of a lull in the battle, as in I believe it's 588, uh, the Babylonians stop their siege of Jerusalem because they have to take care of the Egyptian army which is entering into Judah, and then the rest of this text and the events that happen uh, extend into 587 when Jerusalem is finally uh, destroyed. So we are approaching the bitter end here with this text toward the very, very end of the history of Judah and Jerusalem as a kingdom and its capital. Zedekiah is the king at that time. He figures into this text. Tell me a little bit about King Zedekiah and his reign. What kind of what kind of king are we talking about here? Yeah, so like I'm sure that you've talked about over the course of your time in uh, in hosting Sharper Iron, we know that there's only two good kings of uh, Judah after the United Kingdom, and uh, those two kings which are good are Hezekiah and Josiah, uh, which means that Zedekiah can't be one of the good ones. Um, kind of in the in the history of Israel. Um, you have this period of time where kind of when Ahaz was the ruler of Judah, the Assyrians came in and, and took care of the northern kingdom. And then Ahaz's son was Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah faced uh, off against a, a siege of Jerusalem against the Assyrians, which he was told to remain still, and he listened to God as a good king, and the Assyrian army was defeated. Um, after Hezekiah, we, of course, get Manasseh, who earlier in the book of Jeremiah, God let his people know that on account of Manasseh's horrors, that he was going to send judgment to the people, and he was not going to relent from that judgment. So we get Manasseh, and then after Manasseh, you have Ammon, and then the good king Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah kind of being a, the last of the kings and him not being a very good one either. And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit, about why he might be called a bad king. Yeah, he, he figures prominently, particularly in these first couple of verses of the chapter, and we'll have a chance to talk more about him. So let's, let's read here in Jeremiah chapter 34. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. And that's through verse... 7 of chapter 34, Pastor Ulmer, the opening scene here. Uh, one of the things that, that stands out at the very beginning that I, I guess I just didn't really think about in the siege of Jerusalem here at the end, Jeremiah tells us that not only is Nebuchadnezzar there with his army, but he's also got all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all all the peoples, everybody is fighting against Jerusalem here. It's, it's quite the, I mean, the Babylonian army is bad enough, of course, but it seems that Nebuchadnezzar has got anyone and everyone that he's got under his dominion. They've all now, they've allied together. I mean, of course, the Babylonians made them do this, but they're all there together fighting Jerusalem. This is a really uh, brutal scene against Jerusalem. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, if if you kind of read the historical accounts of these, the, these sieges, they are absolutely horror stories where you have armies circling around fortified cities and starving them out from resources around causing famine and, and disease and all sorts of horrors. Um, I think maybe one of the reasons why you have the Babylonians and all these other uh, vassal kingdoms here who are helping out is, number one, one of the main reasons why the Babylonians are in Judah in the first place is because of a uh, of a rebellion, a broken promise. Uh, prior in the history of Judah, Judah had kind of 
paid tribute to to Babylon and kind of become a vassal. And another reason why the Babylonians could have brought all of uh, the fighting men that they could have was because there was always a threat of Egypt, the other major power in the world, coming in and helping. Um, I think that everybody's probably here, number one, to send a message to Jude and all its inhabitants, and number two, to make sure that they had the ability to fight off the Egyptians should they come, and wink, wink, they were coming. And and two, I think, you know, it's a reminder to all those other vassal nations of who's really in charge to, to show them, look, you're going to fight against this rebel state as a reminder that if you ever get the idea that you want to rebel, this is what's going to happen to you. And, and so it really, I mean, it does give a picture of Babylon as the world power that they really were, that they had all these vassal states under their control all coming against the people of God there in Jerusalem and in Judah. And and toward the end, we find out that Jerusalem's there under siege. There's two fortified cities left around them. But beyond that, like, that's it. This is the, the devastation yeah. that's already been wreaked there in Judah. Absolutely. Yeah. So so we, we get then. And so this is the scene. There, this fighting is happening. Jerusalem is under siege. Jeremiah gets this word from the Lord. Go talk to Zedekiah. And the news that Jeremiah brings to Zedekiah is probably not what Zedekiah was looking for. No. Uh, it's, it's bad news, no doubt. Uh, we were talking beforehand. There's really not any explicit good news in this text. We're, we're getting a bunch of, you know, this is law, judgment, condemnation. So what is the message that Jeremiah is given to speak to Zedekiah? Yeah, I mean, the, the message that Jeremiah is given to speak to, to Zedekiah is a is a word of absolute judgment. And I, I think that this passage and kind of the overall message of Jeremiah really speaks to the, the horrific uh, judgment that the exile was going to end up being on the people, because in the past, when the people were strong and secure— it was God who was there, who was fighting for um, his people. And in this passage, God is specifically saying that he is going to let the Babylonians come in, that he is going to allow Jerusalem to fall, that he is going to allow the, uh, the rightful Davidic king to be removed from the throne, and that there's nothing in the world that Zedekiah, there's nothing in the world that the people can do to stop it. I mean, in verse 5, it ends with, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. God has made up his mind to, to judge and punish his people, and it's going to happen. He even says in verse 2, you know, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. It's it's not even it's yeah. that which I think is even stronger than just the Lord letting Babylon have its way. The Lord's yeah. actively giving this city into the hand of Babylon uh, to the point that we've even heard in previous texts from the book of Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah has told Zedekiah, you should just surrender because if you don't surrender yeah. you're going to die. And and this is really just a this builds on those those previous prophecies that he's given to simply surrender. This is what the Lord has has determined, and that's the way it's going to be. Zedekiah, we, we see, is not changing his mind, and Zedekiah receives a, a particular promise from the Lord, a particular promise that's going to happen to him. He's told what's 
like he's not going to escape either. Just because he's the king, he's not going to get any kind of special treatment. In fact, he's going to meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face. And and given what we know from the other parts of scripture about King Zedekiah and the way that his life does come to an end, I think the the phrasing here in Jeremiah is on purpose. Can you fill, fill us in on that, Pastor Ulmer? Yeah, sure. Without getting too too far ahead of the story here, uh, the the siege of Jerusalem and the end of the kingdom is documented in the book of Second Kings twenty five, and it's very clear that the Babylonians, after their their siege of Jerusalem, there does end up becoming a a weak part in the wall of the city. Um, the Babylonians do go in, they wreak absolute havoc, and King uh, Zedekiah is caught kind of fleeing the city. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's men capture Zedekiah and bring him uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. So the prophecy of Jeremiah is is quite literally uh, fulfilled because Zedekiah is brought face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar. And you might think that that would be reasonable news, because being brought face-to-face with uh, the king of the army that just defeated you, maybe you could plead mercy. But what happens to Zedekiah is far from merciful. Uh, Zedekiah has all of his children, or so the Babylonians think, brought in front of Zedekiah. They're killed in front of him. And then as a last measure, as kind of a uh, as kind of a picture to this prophecy, uh, Zedekiah's eyes are put out and then taken into exile where he uh, finishes his days in Babylon. Right. I mean, the, the thought there is that the last thing that you see is this terrible, terrible scene of your own children being killed in front of you, and then your eyes are put out. So that's the very last thing you see. And I think the, you know, the reason that that comes to mind is just the way that Jeremiah phrases this, that you're going to see him eye to eye, almost like a, you know, a hint at it. And it's, I don't, I don't think that he's prophesying that particular aspect of Zedekiah's end at that moment, but it, it sure seems like that in the way that the Lord gives this word to Jeremiah, that there's at least a, a nod to it or a, a foreshadow of it. And in the background knowing the full story. What what does strike me about this is that on the one hand, Zedekiah is very clearly told, you're going to go to Babylon and you're going to die, which happens. But there is this this word, and I'm curious what you think about it, Pastor Ulmer, where, where the Lord says, you're not going to die by the sword, you'll die in peace. And I almost want to put in peace, peace in quotes in the sense that he dies in peace he doesn't die during the war, but it doesn't mean I don't yeah. think that his death is somehow good. Is there, is that sur- supposed to be some sort of consolation for Zedekiah, or is it simply just a matter of you're not going to die in the battle, you're just going to die later, and you're still going to die? I, I personally think it's probably towards the latter. Um, Zedekiah is going to be taken into exile into Babylon. He is going to die there. This future for him is absolute certain. And I think maybe the only consolation is, is that he can he can spend the rest of his days and 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 maybe uh repent and find solace in, in God's work. But going into 
to Babylon, as we learn from other uh, scriptures, is not really a fun time for the people of God, uh, Judah, that they're always longing for the day where they can go and live in their land and worship their God and, and their temple and do things as his people. And this this never, this opportunity never again comes for Zedekiah. Yeah, I mean, his, his end is, is, I mean, just read from Second Kings and you'll see just the terrible tragedy the, the horrific nature of Zedekiah's end, and it's it's meant to be that way. And, and yeah, I don't think that this lessens that blow that comes from Second Kings. If anything, you, you kind of wonder if Jeremiah is bringing this word to Zedekiah as just another effort here, again, at the bitter end, in hopes that Zedekiah will somehow come to his senses, go ahead in repentance, surrender to Babylon, such that yeah. more of the people of Judah would be spared. Yeah, I, I I fully agree with that. I, I think that's consistent with the message of Jeremiah previous to, to chapter 34, and I think uh, Zedekiah would have done well to listen. And, and of course, as we know, well, I should say as we know, he, he doesn't, although what we're going to read in chapter 34, I think maybe gives a hint that Something seems to have struck Zedekiah. We, we have a couple other examples. That, that previous chapter I mentioned, chapter 21, Zedekiah does come to Jeremiah looking for a word from the Lord. So there's these glimpses occasionally that, that maybe something has hit Zedekiah. It never seems to hit him or the people fully, no doubt. But there, there maybe is a, a glimpse in what's about to happen in the rest of this chapter that, that maybe something touched Zedekiah just ever so slightly, enough to get him to act in, in a small way, again, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter. Before we move on to the, the next main event here in the chapter, Pastor Ulmer, is there anything else in these verses, verses 1 to 7, that we need to pick up that we've missed so far? I think that's pretty well it so far. Okay. So again, we've, we've set the scene. Babylon and all the armies of their vassal states, they are surrounding Jerusalem in this siege. It's a brutal scene. Zedekiah has been told, you are going to die. Don't expect this to change. Now the text continues. This is verse eight. And I'll, I'll read the rest of the chapter because the rest of this does go together. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
You have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the man, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city. And they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. That's the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah 34. That was verses 8 to 22. It's one of those sections of scripture where you you say thus, or this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God after it. And you're, wow, what a what a text, Pastor Ulmer. That's, that's brutal stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those texts where I think the, the people that I, that I and maybe even you serve on Sunday mornings, where if this were the reading and you said this is the word of the Lord, I think people would sit in their pews and say, I hope pastor's not preaching on that text. There, There is, this is a hard word, no doubt, and and yet written for our instruction, uh, for us to, to take to heart and, and to learn what God would have us learn. So let's let's dig in. Let's let's try to get a, a handle on, on what's happening here, Pastor Ulmer. As I was mentioning in the lead up, it seems that that maybe in what in what begins with this text that perhaps King Zedekiah and some of the people, well, most of the people, they they get it for a second and they say we have been breaking the covenant and and we need to do something about it and the the doing something about it centers around this matter of releasing their their fellow slaves. So, I guess my my first question is is that is that kind of how we should understand this? Is this is perhaps a response of the people in a in an attempt at repentance? I, I think that is one one component of what is going on in this text. I think another part, another component of this text that is at least plausible is that this freeing of the slaves happened during the the first time that Jerusalem was. Uh, besieged by the Babylonians before the the first siege broke and the Babylonians went to fight the Egyptians, where there might have been a part of this that was, A, Zedekiah and the people were, were being repentant, and B, they were also being practical, mm-hmm. because if the siege were going to continue, they were going to need every single fighting body that was possible and freeing the slaves that were under their control, the Hebrew slaves particularly that were under their control, would maybe make the the people of Jerusalem more willing and more able to to fight when that day came. Um, so, so it, well, it, it just uh, to, so I'm following you here. So on the one hand, we could, and I think there's there's parts in the text that do 
they certainly seem to indicate a religious motivation or maybe yeah. a religious cover, which is, is perhaps the, the better way to think about it, particularly as Jeremiah begins preaching about it, that they, they do this under the cover of religion. They, they have a covenant. There's a covenant ceremony. There's even this, this word from the Lord that comes previously in the Old Testament, which we'll probably look at on the other side of the break. So on the one hand, you've got this on the surface. There's a religious look to it. But when you start to dig into what's going on, it seems that there's also a very practical side to this that, hey, we're under siege. We need anybody and everybody to fight right now. Having these slaves is not going to do us any good. Let's set them free. They can help us out. And oh, by the way, our fingers are crossed behind our back. If the siege ends, well, we're not really all that repentant. So maybe maybe a, a mixture of of both things where the, the practicality seems to have taken the top seat and the religious part is just a, 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 a veneer over it all to maybe make it seem a little more impressive. Yeah, I, that, that's kind of how I see this text. And, and I think that the, the religious flavor of this is very, very strong because of how and where they make this covenant, where and how they release these slaves. This is done in a ceremony in the temple, the the house that bears God's name. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it's pretty easy to to see in this text that that might not have been uh, real honest because of how quickly that promise was broken and that breaking of the promise, which we'll probably talk about here in a little bit, is kind of part of the the reason why the the Judeans were in such trouble in the first place, that this was just another instance of them being covenant breakers. Um, they broke their covenant with the Babylonians, which brought them back. Um, they had broken their covenant with God, which had brought forth his judgment and anger, and this was just another example of it, and for that kind of real bold uh, covenant-breaking, they were going to reap a lot of pain. Mm. Yeah, this this matter of covenant-breaking, breaking the promises that they've made, particularly the promises to the Lord, is par for the course for the people of Judah. And, and here, even at the very end of it all— we have yet another example, and, and that's where Jeremiah is going to be preaching. We're going to dig into that more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, studying Jeremiah chapter 34 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 15th. We are studying Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Elmer, prior to the break, we were looking at this last part of the chapter dealing with this matter of 
the slaves in Jerusalem who were set free really under pretense. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, that it's got this religious veneer to it, but there's probably just a practical thing under the surface that they're trying to cover up. And that's shown by the fact that they go back on their promise really quickly. In terms of the background of this practice, that there are Hebrew slaves there in Jerusalem and this matter of being released at the end of seven years that's brought up and as a part of this religious ceremony that they undergo, what's the Old Testament background? Where are we drawing from here to understand what's happening in Jeremiah 34? Yeah, like so many things in Scripture to figure out what's going on, you you have to go back a long, long way into the history of God's people. And this particular practice goes all the way back to the Exodus, um, during during the Exodus, God sent Moses into Egypt to let God's people go, and over the course of ten plagues and some amazing miracles, uh, God did set his people free from Pharaoh's hand. And when they were safe on the other side of the Red Sea, God told them to go to Mount Sinai, and there uh, God spoke to his people and established his covenant with them. God told them who he was. God told them who they were. God told them what he expected of them, how they were to act, uh, how they were to live with him and with one another, uh, with specific respect to living in the land. And when all of this was done, uh, we know what Israel's response was. In, in Exodus 19, chapter 7 and 8, uh, Exodus reads, So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And when this happened, this covenant was kind of set by the sprinkling of blood on the people, and they were to have a kind of relationship, a covenant relationship with God um, that was set in blood. And of course, when Moses went back up to to get all of this uh, set with God for 40 days, to come down the mountain with the, the stone commandments, the the rules of the covenant. We know exactly how long it took uh, the Israelites to uh, break their promise to do everything that the Lord has said, because when Moses came down the mountain after 40 days, they were already worshiping a golden calf. Yeah, it, it didn't take them long to start breaking the covenant. So the, the covenant breaking that we see in Jeremiah's day, again, is nothing new among the people of Israel. In terms of the covenant that the Lord gave to Moses and the various instructions that come there on Mount Sinai, what was it about Hebrew slaves that was mentioned there that comes into factor here in Jeremiah 34? Yeah, so after all of this, the the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, and Exodus 21 begins with very specific instructions as to how to deal with Hebrew slaves. Exodus 21 reads, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. 
If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the, pl- if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So part of this covenant was God telling his people how they were to deal with slaves, that after six years of slavery, for whatever reason that these people were brought into slavery, whether it was by being purchased or by fulfilling a debt, that after six years of service on the seventh year, they go free. This was part of the system that God had set up for his people. So, and I think you know it's it's probably worth a mention that what what we're talking about here is is perhaps a better modern way of thinking is something like indentured servitude. This is typically yeah. done to pay a debt. This isn't really the the same thing as like owning another human being. You you can see from the way that the the people were treated as slaves in Egypt that the Lord does not intend that for his own people. And, and so this is you know a, a way that a man could pay a debt that he owed was by promising service to another to whom he owed the money. And and the Lord always had this provision that after six years in this in this Sabbath year, there was rest and the, the debt was gone. And and that was something that the Lord built into the way that that he intended his people to live. It gets it gets repeated again in, in Deuteronomy fifteen, this this matter of I mean, just the way that they were to treat their fellow Israelites was not the way that they had been treated in Egypt, and it's it's just built in. So that's the background. Yeah, and in, Go ahead. in, in the Deuteronomy uh, text, it even a lot of the similar words are there, but it all, even goes into being much more explicit about how the previous master was to treat a slave, that he was supposed to not send him away empty-handed, but to furnish him liberally out of their flocks, out of the fleshing floor, and out of the wine press. So when they were released from their duty, they were to be uh, blessed. Hmm. So that's that's in the background to what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 34. Zedekiah, and again, this is where, you know, is there a religious motivation? Maybe they've talked that way. I mean, it's, it's not hard to imagine Zedekiah hearing this word from Jeremiah about how he's going to die in, in an unpleasant way. And and he says mm-hmm. to his officials, look, we need to try to do something about this. Let's free our slaves. We know that's in the in the law of God. Let's Let's do this. And apparently everyone agrees for a time. So they let's talk a little bit about the the religious aspect of this, Pastor Ulmer. What in terms of this this covenant that they make together to set free their slaves? What what's going on here? Yeah. So apparently Zedekiah gets all of the the nobility and all the people to get on board uh, with this freeing and to do this they end up uh, making a covenant in the house of the Lord. And with this covenant, which is going to be here relevant in in the next section too, there was the, the killing of animals and the passing through them to kind of cement the promise in blood. Uh, one of the places where this is very well known in scripture is Genesis 15, where God 
makes a covenant with Abraham that when when God makes a promise to him that he is going to become a great nation, Abraham asks God how he's going to know this. And this is where God tells Abram to to get a heifer, a female goat, a ram, turtle doves, and young pigeons. And those animals, besides the the birds, Abraham cuts in half, and then he is driven into a deep sleep. And while he is in this deep sleep, he sees um, a fire pot and a flaming torch walking through the the pieces of the animals to signify that uh, this promise was was made to him, and that promise was sure, and that there would be consequences if that promise was not kept. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is what is going on with the Judeans uh, under the, I guess, command of King Zedekiah that they are to release these slaves. They they go through that process. To, to get that done. Oh. And, and so the, the idea behind that kind of process, which as you said, is is very famous in Genesis 15. I, as I was preparing for this, I guess I had forgotten that this that same image was here in Jeremiah 34 because it is that same process. The, the thought behind it is we, we cut this animal in half, we pass through it, and if we break our part of the covenant, then what's happened to these animals, we're saying that's what can happen to us. It's a pretty a pretty solemn vow that they're making. It, it is. I mean, by our sensibility, it might seem very, very gory and brutal, but that kind of lends to the, the seriousness of the vows that are being made, that if, if you kind of go back on your promise, then you are agreeing that your life is forfeit. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a very solemn promise for the people of Judah to make, particularly given what happens. And this is where you, you do have to kind of take all these verses together, because otherwise there's there's a bit of missing information that at least left me scratching my head. You know, they've made this this promise very solemnly. They set their slaves free, and then all of a sudden they reverse course. And, and Jeremiah, you know, that's what he he's going to preach about to them is that you've reversed course. You've broken another promise just like you always have, but you don't really find out the reason. Well, like, why would they do that? There's this little note yeah. at the very end in verse 22, and you, you've mentioned it briefly. I'll let you talk more about it here, Pastor Ulmer. In verse 22, the Lord says, I'm going to command, declares the Lord, and will bring, or no, that's verse 21, I'm sorry, the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. It's It seems that the withdrawing of Babylon is what led to this sudden change of mind among the people of Judah. So again, give us kind of the historical background for that in terms of how this plays out with the, the oath and then the way they break it. Yeah, so apparently Zedekiah, in a way of trying to cover his rear end, calls out for help uh, by means of the military might of Egypt. And the the military might of Egypt actually comes to bear. Uh, the Egyptians march their army into Judah, and because of this, the Babylonians are forced, at least for a time, to divert their forces away from Jerusalem. So the siege breaks for a little while. And apparently when the Babylonians decided to break their siege and engage in warfare against the Egyptians. Apparently, the, the Judeans and King Zedekiah must have thought that uh, they were saved, that 
that Egypt was going to prevail on their behalf, because immediately when that happens, they decided to take back the promise, the covenant that they had um, made, not just with the people enslaved under them themselves, but the promise that they had made uh, to God in God's house. They, they thought that they were safe enough to, to take back that promise. Um, we find out in Jeremiah's preaching that this course of action was, uh, let me say, not good. That's a tremendous understatement, because not only uh, were the Judeans not going to be saved by the Egyptians, the Egyptians were going to lose, which they did in a, a pretty marvelous fashion, but they weren't going to even do enough damage to the Babylonians to make them stop sieging Jerusalem. That they were going to be back, and when they came back, they were going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a rather stark turn of events, and it does, I, I think this is when we start to put these pieces together, this is where that earlier characterization of there's a religious veneer to this, but it seems to be mostly practical in nature and almost the any religious aspect is sort of a last ditch effort rather than any real repentance in their hearts because as yeah. soon as that threat of you know if there is an element of repentance which Jeremiah does does say in verse 15 that the language is you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty mm-hmm. so the, I mean the Lord does acknowledge that they had taken the right course of action but it, it had not gone anywhere near their hearts, it seems, because as soon as that threat of danger was gone, they're back to their same old ways, which, which this is what Jeremiah has been preaching all along, is that they're using their religious exterior, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That was the refrain back in chapter seven. That religious exterior, they think, allows them to do whatever they want to worship whatever idol they want, to believe whatever they want, to mistreat their neighbor however they want. And they fall right back into it as soon as the threat of danger is gone. The the repentance never I was I was reminded as I was thinking about this, the the seed that that goes into the soil and sprouts up right away, but then there's no root and it withers. Yeah. It it's almost almost like that. It's just, you know, I mean, but this is this again is is par for the course for the people of Judah. They've been doing this over and over again. And, and here they are. They think, oh, Babylon left. We're okay. Business as usual then. My slave, he doesn't need to fight on the wall anymore. He needs to come back and, and serve me. And there, there they go again, back into that same old idolatry. And, and this is where Jeremiah picks up his preaching then. So, so take us into some of the things that, that Jeremiah has to say about all of this and the way the Lord gives him to preach. Yeah, I, I really liked how how you brought idolatry into this too, because ultimately that ends up being what the the people's main problem is. That was the source of all of the original covenant breaking of the people Israel too. Every time they had an opportunity to go after other gods, they they took that path, and it always brought them pain. From the golden calf to the conquest of the promised land through the united monarchy all the way through the history of the northern kingdom which fell because of 
idolatry and worshiping in high places not given to them by God, to ultimately the fall of Jerusalem. Because at the end of the day, uh, I think the best constructive way of saying uh, they were acting is that they had faith, but their their faith was in the wrong object. They Their faith was in the fact that they had a building of stone and not that they were God's chosen people, and that was their ultimate downfall. And I think that that theme does come out in Jeremiah's preaching, as as he reminds them of what they've done. And you know, he he brings to yeah. bear the passages that we talked about from Exodus and Deuteronomy about what the Lord's instructions were, and then how they did this. You know, in verse fifteen, that they actually did this; they did what was right. In verse sixteen, when he talks about what they've now done in breaking their covenant. He says in verse 16, you turned around and they says, and profaned my name when each of you took yeah. back his. So not only have they sinned against these, these men and women who they've enslaved wrongly, but, but now they've also added to that because they've taken the Lord's name in vain. They've profaned his name, which again, this is what they've been doing all along. And here Jeremiah comes again saying, you, you've sinned against your neighbor and you've sinned against God. Yep. That's exact. That's exactly what's happening here. So, I mean, this is this is not a pretty picture that these people have put themselves into. Here at the, the very bitter end, they've got this, you know, this chance for repentance. You think about the people of Nineveh when they're told they've got forty days by the prophet Jonah, and suddenly they're sackcloth ashes in repentance. The people of of Judah here in their waning days, Babylon's been knocking at their doorstep. Suddenly Babylon leaves and they think everything's fine. This total lack of repentance. The Lord has some very stinging words. And there's a couple of, of things that we should pay attention to, I think. The first is in verse 17, where where the Lord says, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. And they says, I proclaim to you liberty. But this is not yep. what they may be having. What's the Lord saying there, Pastor Ulmer? Yeah, he says that, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to sword, to pestilence, and to famine. So they're not going to be free to to live their lives uh, happy and free and fulfilled and provided for. He is going to give them over to uh, the sword and to pestilence and to famine, and and because of their covenant breaking. He is going to allow them to feel the full punishment of their idolatry, which is going to be death by the sword. I mean, specifically here with the sword, going back to that covenant process, when he would cut an animal in half, that's part of the image that's given here by being uh, proclaimed liberty to the sword. I mean, it, he talks about it later here in verse 18 where God's going to make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. You have that image back in, in Exodus 15. You have that image that probably happened in the, in the covenant ceremony of the releasing of the slaves in the temple, where, where they probably did this. They took a sword, cut a cow in half, and, and walked through it, proclaiming to God that we made this promise. And now that was going to be them, because they were the ones who went back on the promise. Mm. Right. I mean, the Lord holds them to what they did. You know, and he, he brings he did, that he up. Does. He says, look, you, you did this. You walked through the calf 
And now this is what's going to happen to you. You will be set free by the sword and you will be killed. It's it's a rather, again, very stark preaching from Jeremiah. Uh, let's see. Also there, Pastor Ulmer, the, the result of it, you have this just horrific image here of the dead bodies just lying there. We've, we've seen this elsewhere in Jeremiah as well. But again, now this is almost like the the final nail in the coffin, it it seems that that this is, you know, and the Lord's been saying this all along. You you refuse to keep your promises to me, and so I am going to keep my promises to you. Think about what the covenant said. There were curses yeah. and blessings. Here come the curses. Yeah, here comes the curses in full, and this curse uh, is going to be completely indiscriminate. He says it's going to be to the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, priests, and all the people. This is coming, and everybody is going to feel it because uh, everyone is unrighteous. Toward the end, then, where where the Lord does mention, okay, you, you notice Babylon left here. I think this is significant, again, that the Lord in verse 22 says, I'm going to command them. I'm going to bring them back to this city. I mean, you think about particularly Zedekiah, who's sought help from Egypt, thinking he can take matters into his own hands. Once again, the Lord shows Zedekiah, no, you can't take matters into your own hands. When you try to trust in your political moves, it never works because, you know, I mean, I'm at, I wish, I, I kind of wish that Jeremiah had said, declares the Lord of hosts here, but I, that's what comes to mind is because the Lord is Lord, even of the army of Babylon. Yeah, it, it does. And I think this preaching makes it very, very clear. The Babylonians are not in Judah because the Babylonians want to kill Judeans and the Babylonians want to pillage uh, the Judeans' things. Now, they do want that, but the reason why the Babylonians are there, the reason why the Babylonians have the power that they do, the reason why the Babylonians are able to defeat the Egyptians, the reason why the Babylonians are able to continue their prolonged siege of Jerusalem is because they are God's chosen instrument of punishment. These are people who, whether they know it or not, which they probably don't, they are acting on God's behalf to do God's will. And it's something that is very harsh. It's something that the people didn't understand. Um, but that's just how it always has been with God, God and His people. Uh, when they are when they are with Him, when they are living with Him, they they get the blessings from His hand, and when they when they do not uphold their part of the covenant, they they get the punishment, they get the curse as promised. Pastor Elmo, we have just under four minutes on the morning, and, and as we said early on, this is a, a text that has basically no good news. Even the, the closest thing that may seem to be a consolation that Zedekiah is going to die in peace and not by the sword doesn't have much comfort in it. As we consider a chapter like Jeremiah chapter 34, how do we make use of a text like this in our lives as Christians? How does the Lord use texts like this in the scriptures toward the ultimate purpose of the scriptures, which we know is to give us Jesus Christ and that by faith in him, we would have life in his name. What, how do we use Jeremiah 34? How does it fit for our lives as Christians? Yeah. I mean, at least, at least for me as a Christian and as a pastor, seeing this tremendous judgment always allows me to keep into perspective 
how bad the sin of idolatry is and how pervasive the sin of idolatry is. And I'm not even going to, to point this out to to any specific listener. I'm going to say this is about me, how bad it is in my life. We are called as Christians to have no other gods, and what does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. When when we put our trust in ourselves, when we put our trust in powers, when we put our trust in monetary systems, when we put our trust in anything but God, we we put ourselves in opposition to him, and that's a battle that we are always going to lose. But we also know that this God that we have no means of defeating has defeated all of our enemies for us. He has sent his son to die, and he raised him from the grave so that when we uh, receive his gifts, he provides for us all that we need. It's always keeping it in the forefront of our, of our eyes and in our hearts that the object of our faith is the God who doesn't just condemn, but the God who saves, hmm. and that uh, the consequences for idolatry uh, can be terribly severe. And and with that in mind, then the the need to repent becomes all the more urgent yeah. and all the more important, because as as we've said, the Lord speaks like this precisely because He wants to turn His people so that He can have mercy on them. That's that's always His goal, and, and to keep that yeah. in mind. Go ahead. Final, final thoughts, Pastor. Yeah. And re- well, yeah, and repentance is is really the only mechanism that we have to uh, restore that relationship because it's all done based on his mercy and his grace found in Jesus Christ. Mm, yeah, and that repentance is is his gift to us in his word by which he calls us away from our sins and back to faith in him. Pastor Matt Ulmer is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 22. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send a message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.